0: This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. to Write Answers. I am Noah Waspy, and I'm joined by Beth Reimer. Beth, how's it going?
1: It is good, as always, I think, Noah. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you're the, the co-director of the writing project, the Ohio Writing Project, and I know that there are lots and lots of things going on that you would love to tell us about. What's going on at OWP right now?
1: So, Hey, Noah, thanks for asking. There is good stuff going on. You know, I have been lucky enough to spend time with teachers recently, as we have continued to figure out what it's like to teach in remote times, distant times, hybrid times, changing times every week. It seems like it might be a little bit different. And so OWP PD is going on. And if your school is interested in working together with the writing project, like we're the place. So it's been really fun and interesting and thoughtful. And most exciting, our summer classes are out. So drum roll, please. We have such an amazing lineup of summer classes. It ranges from grammar to poetry to place-based writing, which really looks at like authentic voices and how context and place matters. And writing for change and social justice, I mean, it is good stuff this summer.
0: And to anyone who hasn't taken PD with the Ohio Writing Project, I just wanna jump in and mention that it's one of the most transformative professional development opportunities that you'll ever have. It's not one where you just like look at PowerPoints and learn how to do something that your district wants you to do. It's where, you, it's a really experiential thing where you experience the learning, you write, you read you learn the kinds of things that your students will learn in every single opportunity that you could take whether it's a class or just regular professional development you get something that you could use tomorrow
1: yeah like a um, really hash- cool
0: thing that you could use in your classroom tomorrow
1: yeah hashtag teachers teaching teachers right now <laughs>
0: exactly exactly all right and all that stuff will be up on the website so And uh, the website link will be in the show notes to this episode. So how about we get to a poem? So one of the the things that um, sometimes uh, PD leaders for OWP will use is a poem called 15, maybe 16 Things I Could Worry About by Judith Judith Viorst. She wrote uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I found a really good complimentary poem. It's by Shel Silverstein. It's called What If. Have you heard this one before?
1: Yes, I love it. I'm excited.
0: Last night, while I lay thinking here, some what ifs, some what ifs crawled into my ear and pranced and partied all night long and sang their same old what if song. What if I'm dumb in school? What if they've closed the swimming pool? What if I get beat up? What if there's poison in my cup? What if I start to cry? What if I get sick and die? What if I flunk that test? What if green hair grows on my chest? What if nobody likes me? What if a bolt of lightning strikes me? What if I don't grow taller? What if my head starts getting smaller? What if the fish won't bite? What if the wind tears up my kite? What if they start a war? What if my parents get divorced? What if the bus is late? What if my teeth don't grow in straight? What if I get a tear in my pants? What if I never learn to dance? Everything seems swell, and then... The nighttime what-ifs strike again. It brings me back to being in high school and junior high.
1: <laughs> right, right. And not only is that just fun to hear, right, um, The the lyrics are always just the way the words are put together. I always love his poetry, but, you know, I mean, I just had 20 ideas for use in the classroom after we enjoy it one day, bring it back the next day. And we could have like an oral (laughs) composing just that goes around the room and Mm -hmm. we like throw up all kinds of what ifs just, there's so many ways to just use that as a model too, for just fun, fluent writing.
0: And when I use this poem in class, I, in addition to all those things, I use it as a way to show how poets can play with words because the word because the words what if is grouped together as one word. And I love for students to be able to just play with words and, ex- and experiment with words. All right, so let's get to today's episode. Uh, we're, we are talking to an really important, wonderful OWP person. Her name is Megan Lawson. Beth, what can you tell us about Megan?
1: So Megan Lawson is a light. You know, Noah, she's one of those people that from the moment I met her years ago in a classroom, she just was the kind of person that was willing to be honest, was willing to ask questions, was willing to work hard to kind of make the world a better place. And we have always needed people like that in our lives. And I think every day we need them more. And You know, Megan has done everything from teaching classes for a high writing project, getting her master's degree at the high writing project, to leading PD at the high writing project, and every single time people walk away like better because of it because of meeting her, right? And I think like, for example, the other day, and this is a good example of her, she tweeted a question about what, if we could come up with our own title, a job title that really showed who we were as people, like, what would it be? And, you know, she calls herself a joyologist. And I think like that idea that she always does this thing. She asks a simple question that feels fun and light and joyful, but also challenges us to really be our best and to look at ourselves. So, I I mean, I am so excited that you get to meet Megan Lawson here in this
0: podcast, people, so yay! Yeah, And this episode is really for leaders in school districts, people, teachers who want to be, who aspire to be leaders. And the really cool thing that she gets into is how to be your best can often involve sharing your worst. To find out what that means, keep on listening here it is our interview with megan lawson
2: the whole premise is so often we put leadership as this thing that we're all aspiring to become like we're all searching for that next job and role that has a title that sounds leadership-ish, whether it's department chair or assistant principal or principal, but the truth is the strongest leadership in almost all schools, all schools I'll just say, because I believe that in my soul, (laughs) comes from the teachers. Uh, And yet there's so little for teachers that's not focused on trying to get something else and instead just showing up and being our best selves in our current role as teacher. And so we spend a lot of time doing that kind of work together.
0: So how long have you been working with this teachers? Did it just start this year?
2: It just started this year.
0: So in in your piece, When Leaders Go First, you talk about how, well, let me just set up the situation. Uh, You meet with these two small groups of teachers about around leadership and being your best self as a teacher for about 90 minutes once a month, right? Yes. And after your October meeting, you said that, you realized that your connection and your energy were lacking. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Yes,
2: so picture me over the summer getting super jazzed and excited that I get to have these people that we are trying to create something special with. And I develop all this content that I'm also really excited about. And I hope that as I'm telling this story, teachers who might be listening will think of themselves right in the summer, like gearing up for a big year, planning your best content and lesson. And I was showing up in this space, August, September, October, doing things like trying to build connection. Yes, but being really trying to be really shiny for them. Like I wanted to win them over with my content with what they were gonna be learning with whether or not I seemed like competent and smart about the stuff. And I got so fixated on that, that I like got to the end of the October meeting and realized something's missing. And I think I can't figure out what it is. Like I don't feel super connected to them. I'm super like sweaty and tired, like at the end of these 90 minute sessions, I don't look forward to them. And I felt like so guilty about that. And then I realized You know, your first human thought can often be, maybe it's just the group, right? Like maybe we're just, you know, some, some years are tough and groups don't gel. And then I thought, oh my gosh, like, no, I think it's me. I'm not showing up just as a human being. Like I was too stiff and rigid and trying to be perfect and feel that kind of energy, you know, those mirror neurons kick in and I'm having my energy and they're mirroring that energy. So that was a big aha where we just started our meeting with. So can we just be people like I'm having a hard time? Like, can we talk about that? And like, we talked about it. It was like, this feels right to me. Like this feels like what this is supposed to be about.
0: So what led like, how did you get to that? I want to just slow down that part of the story a little bit, because as teachers, we hear this in the staff lounge or in staff meetings all the time like where teachers where we the the default position is to victim blame like uh these students are not are are quote unquote low this year or um these this is a tough group like you said we do that as teachers not just as it doesn't just happen to educational leaders right (laughs)
2: yeah
0: how did you get to the point where you defaulted to oh what do I need to change is that always been your default position or did that happen magically this time
2: no that's a good question I don't think it was magical um I think I do have a tendency to I think it's just human to typically start with victim blaming as you called it um like I went through a cycle of emotions where it was like, and they blame the circumstances, right? Like, it's because we're over Zoom. Ugh. Like, that just makes it hard to connect more. And then it was like, maybe just all groups aren't going to mesh. Like, maybe these people just aren't going to gel well, and we're not going to have that same synergy that I've had with other groups before. And then I finally, like, after asking, asking, asking all those questions, and not really like knowing for sure the answer. I got to the point where I was like, okay, what is the common variable though between each of these meetings and how they're set up, how they're run? It's like, that's me. Um, I am the common denominator here. So I keep using math terms. I don't even know if they're right, by the way. I just, I hope they're right. Maybe they're smart. I don't know. Um, But I realized that the only thing at the end of the day that i really can control whether it was true or not was myself right so i might as well tinker with this and try and experiment i already really love how it's going so like how bad could it be if i try something different i just kind of got to that place where it was like letting go of that and just try and see
0: so why do you think that so many of us are reluctant to show a less than perfect version of ourselves or show other people that we're having a hard time Hmm.
2: I think, gosh, that's a great question. You could build a lot of episodes around that, by the way. I know for me personally, a lot of leadership that I've watched growing up, whether it's instructional models in the classroom, whether it was me as a teacher, watching other people lead in positions of authority, I only got to see like the shiny self, right? Where people show up with the plan and the right answers and like they're calm and collected. And you just kind of look at them and you say, wow, this person's a unicorn. Like how do they, how do they, how are they doing all this stuff? And I never got to see the messy middle. I never got to see, you know, most it's just like social media, right? You look at social media and it's people's highlight reels and you don't get to see all the stuff for people who've really achieved great things you don't always get to see the journey which was not just step 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 it's more just like that messy Mm -hmm. uh, scribble of fail try again pivot I haven't gotten an inside view of that uh, for much of my life Um, but I've had the good fortune over the last I don't know five to eight years to see more leaders demonstrate that kind of vulnerability and open with it and when they do that, I think it makes other people who are not who are serving under them feel safe. Like, oh, okay. Ever like this person who I really respect and is doing awesome stuff is struggling. Like my struggle can be normalized, and it's okay for me to talk about it.
0: So once you um, normalized the struggle by just opening up yourself by going first as a leader, right? Um, what are some of the specific kinds of differences you notice. I don't want you to violate these teachers' privacy, but as much as you can, can you tell us some of the things that you notice happening?
2: Well, sure. It's just like in the classroom where um, you something goes really well and some a student writes you a note, right, or something and you realize, wow, I really am making a difference and it shouldn't surprise us, but yet it happens every time where we're almost just amazed at that what we did really mattered and it mattered deeply. So in my case, I even offered, here's a nice example that will um, honor their privacy. I asked them for very specific feedback. That's another post on my blog was just about like what feedback can do for us. And I asked them for really honest feedback about the sessions. And one of them had a really great point about how when we're in a group, We can talk and connect, but we can't always connect at an even deeper level. And how nice would it be if I were to check in with them in between sessions to provide um, support for the the work leadership project, or just to talk as people. And I I remember feeling a bit skeptical, like, okay, I'm going to offer that residual, uh, individual time with me. If you like, I'd love to connect with you. And I remember thinking like, nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to like sign up for like a one-on-one with me. Like everyone's so busy. And I was floored that, I mean, five, six people signed up for an individual session. And then not just an individual session. I thought, oh, like they need some support for their leadership project. Like they just wanted to talk like personal development stuff, whatever, talk about the struggle, just like talk as people. And I was just blown away by that. And I guess, I don't even know what your original question was at this point because I just, I got so hung up on talking about that story. But that was an indication to me that we are onto something and our connection is meaningful. And it reminded me never to not offer something or not try something just because there's that side of you that says, that cynical side that says, ugh, people are gonna hate that. Um, because if there's one person that I can benefit, it was worth it. So I, in a, in a previous role, I worked in Forest Hills in the curriculum department. Uh, I was the associate director of secondary curriculum and instruction. So I worked, you know, with seven through 12 and I hit a point in my four years there, where I wasn't quite sure if that's still what I wanted to do. And I hired a job coach uh, for myself um, to help me sort of, for lack of a better word, figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Since I had that feeling of, I'm not sure if this is it. So spoiler alert, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But she did help me get better in the job that I was in. And we made some pretty big changes that I'm really proud of in my last year there, but the thing that I learned the most from her in trying to lead big change that I believe in, um, was like trying to lead big change and trying to be perfect in doing it is is quite literally impossible, um, and... I was holding on to this perfection thing so tight. And if I'm not careful, I can go down that rabbit hole and kind of spiral back into it. But she said something that I'll never forget. And it's, she was one of those people that like just tells it to you how it is and it stings at the time, but you realize you needed it later. She said, um, Megan, people don't like perfect people. And I got to thinking about that and it was okay. Yeah, no, that's actually super true. If nothing else, um, I also have a need to be liked and, uh, people don't like perfect people. So I tell you all that to say, um, when I let go of trying to be so together while trying to bring this group together, um, and went ahead and let some of those imperfections show, I think that that level of authenticity built our level of connection, which led them to them being more open. Like, I don't think they would have wanted to meet with me one-on-one because who wants to meet with somebody who seems just so shiny and perfect and put together, all they're doing then is reminding you of everything that you feel is inadequate about you and yourself and your work.
0: Don't you think that's why books like We Got This by Cornelius Minor can be so powerful because he's talking about these things that we can do to make positive change, but he's also showing these moments of massive failure in his teaching career that spurned him toward this change.
2: That is such a great example of that.
0: And um, like, the, the reason is. I bring it up is I think that there are a few things at play, in addition to our desire to just not appear bad. <laughs> um, we're, we're surrounded by like these expectations of perfection. And a lot of the books that we read as teachers, like when we read a, a book that has research, maybe we read one of John Hattie's books, or maybe we read Marzano, or maybe we read one of the action research teacher books, like something by Kittle or Gallagher. We see these perfect expectations. Like, if you do this, you're more likely to succeed. Look at this really cool creative lesson that I taught. You can teach it this way too. But the thing that we don't really focus on enough, maybe, is like when we read those, like Hattie's research, none of his research says that if you give feedback in this specific way 100% of the time, it fixes everything and you're a perfect teacher. It has an effect size of like 0.6, which means, you know, a certain percentage of the time it's going to make a big impact, but there's still a lot of wiggle room because you're working with human beings, not cogs in a machine. Right.
2: Yeah, that is so true. It's interesting that we, we put that level of weight on it ourselves, even when Hattie is not saying that when you read it.
0: So I think that that's really powerful. Like the work you're doing with reminding people, like this really should start maybe from a place of vulnerability because this work is hard. So was, let's talk about a protocol that I really like that you use to try to dig into these imperfections. Cause I bet that just saying, hey, I'm imperfect, here's what I'm struggling with. That doesn't unlock the flood, floodgates for every human, right? You used a really cool protocol called the blob tree. Do I have that right?
2: Yeah, that is right.
0: Can you describe that for us?
2: So the blob tree is uh, a strategy. And I think if you just Google blob tree, you can find um, the, the website and, and all the images. I can't take credit for the creation of the blob tree. It's a resource that I discovered actually from my friend Allison Curran at Hamilton County who used it with our team. We do some weekly check-ins as a team. And it's a, a, a way for people to respond to all these visual blob images of people on a tree um, and they all have different expressions on their faces and different body language and positions that they're in. And as you're looking at it, you can ask people, you know, in this now moment, which blob best describes how you're feeling, how you're doing? And I think it works well because our brain is designed to respond to stimulus. And I get some of that language that I just rattled off from my experience with um, Eureka Ranch, and innovation engineering in the Newtown, Ohio area, they um, are known for their ability to create, communicate and fast track big ideas and to help others to do it. And that's some of the work that we do on in this leadership cohort is, is I'm helping people with some various tools from that and, and from other places to, to make change possible in their school as a teacher. But they say that uh, in innovation engineering, they would tell you that most ideas, for lack of a better word, are crap. Like most ideas are pretty not great. But we, what happens is um, we end up going with whatever the one idea is because it's the only idea in the room or it's the loudest voice, right? And I could tell you a lot about that, but all of that to say, um, often we wonder why when kids are writing in the classroom and we just give the prompt, the prompt isn't enough. Or we just ask the question of the group, chirp, chirp, nobody's talking. Um, A lot of times it's it's actually just human nature. Our brain um, is designed to respond to stimulus. We get better ideas whenever we're talking with other people and there's diversity of thought in the room. We get better ideas when we have visuals, things that are connected to each other or not to look at. That's why gallery walks work really well um, when kids are writing or adults are writing. And so what I love about the blob tree is I feel like it honors that about the human experience and the brain. We are designed to respond to stimulus. So we don't always know how we're feeling or thinking at any given moment, right? Mm-hmm. And you give me something to look at and I sort of have to ask it, start asking myself, I feel drawn to this one. Why do I feel drawn to this one? Why do I feel curious about that one? Um, and I think it just leans into what is just true about our human nature.
0: And it seems like you're tapping into something that we can also use in our classrooms. That's another reason why I thought it would be interesting for every teacher to hear about it. It's almost like that, that poster that counselors use with all the different kinds of faces that match emotions. Because a lot of times when we're kids, especially, but also when we're adults, we have this generalized anxiety that we can't really pinpoint, right? And you said in your piece, you worry that if we don't share our struggles as leaders, we make leadership something that only perfect people do. Can you say something? Can you talk a little more, more about that quote?
2: Yeah. Oh. I easily fall victim to trying to be or seem perfect. I'm still working on this. I think it's gonna be a lifelong struggle. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but I've taken the Enneagram. I find it super interesting and I'm a classic three. So threes are the achievers. Is threes that are worst. Um, are, we will have this deep seated belief that we are unlovable and we are out there trying to win the love and affirmation and affection of other people. We're trying to show other people, look, I'm a worthwhile person. Like I am worthy of love and belonging. Um, and I just have to wonder how many of us are out there trying to win love, um, that our worth is coming from the wrong kinds of places without us realizing it. And as a result, in an effort to you know win people over or feel successful and therefore feel good about ourselves that we, whether we're leaders and we have a leadership title or we're leaders and we don't even realize it because every human being has leadership in some capacity, that 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 is fueling then the way that we are approaching our work instead of letting connection in our humanity and the messiness that is all of that, connect us with others and lead the work
0: you're making me think about um an interview I listened to recently with Chuck Palahniuk the author who wrote things like Fight Club and some other stuff too um and he talks about how he sometimes he'll go to a party and he'll make a statement about like he's hanging out with these literary types and he'll make a statement about a literary figure that is blatantly wrong so that people will correct him um and I know that, that's the the whole thing that he's talking about might be a little far-fetched, but he says he does this because people love to have a sense of knowing something that other people don't. They like feeling superior in a way. He says that when he writes his characters, he likes to write his characters so they don't know something that the reader does. And it makes the reader feel like the stronger connection. And I feel like one of the things that you're really hit tapping into by showing that your leaders are not perfect is it makes other people it brings other people into the fold and it makes them feel more connected if people can feel like they can bring something to the table that you're not bringing they're more likely to participate right
2: yes and i've been really working on it's so interesting first of all i found that super interesting about that author i need to um, get that information from you after i've been working on elevating other people's voices in the spaces that I'm in because by nature of if I'm the organizer of this group, this PD, this if I'm the leader of the school, whatever, um, I should be listening for the magic that is within the other people and, and looking for their potential and looking for ways to magnify their potential. Um, that should be more rewarding and satisfying to me than my voice and me knowing. Um, and so for, I've been practicing it with this teacher leadership cohort. There are things that I think of, Oh, I, that reminds me of this one book or this one thing that I should st- should say, but I think it tends to be more powerful if I ask a few more probing questions and I let someone else get there and the group hears it from that person who's a member of the group who now, has just become, you know, the giver of some really important wisdom and actually knows more about more than I knew in my first thought that I had about the thing. And so I don't know. I'm just working on that. And I think often we're eager to like show everybody, like, look at all this stuff that I know, look at all this stuff that I can do. But true leadership is that if you're, if no one's following you, you're not a leader. Um, And I think the way to get people to follow is to realize that you see what's in them and you want to develop and elevate that and celebrate that versus like, look at me being awesome.
0: Um, So yeah, I don't know. No, if I might jump in there, how do you balance being publicly imperfect with maintaining your credibility as a leader?
2: Oh, that is really important (laughs) and good. It is, it's really important and good and I know it's a good one when I really have to think about it before I, I share, you know, people like Angela Fallhaber do that really well. Um, somehow they, you know that they know a lot about like how to do stuff and do it well. And yet they model the struggle and something about the way people like her that can do that. Um, I don't know, how do you like show people that like, you know what you're doing? Um, I guess actions are loud, right? And I mean, there's that whole like actions speak louder than words, but you know, like, are you, are you someone people can count on? Do you follow through? I mean, that's what it takes to be a good teammate. And if you're following through and taking good care of people and the way that you think about things and plan things and involve them and engage their voices, like that's competency. Um, and then how you show up in that space and modeling the parts of the stuff where you don't have all the answers and like relying on the group to, um, have their collective wisdom and genius rise to the top. Uh, that I think is a way to kind of perhaps, I don't know, leverage the balance between those two polar opposite things.
0: So I think that it's like, what you're saying is, it seems like you're saying that, um, being imperfect is not, you know, everything, but it's also, it's a really important pillar of like what holds up you as a leader, right? Among like showing up, being consistent.
2: I think so. And I also think, isn't it interesting how, if you look, people who continue to grow in positions of power and authority, they're often the people who are the least likely then to hear what people are really thinking and feeling about the work, about their leadership, about their decisions, because that's scary. Like someone's has all this power, right? And you're down here in the power hierarchy. Um, And so creating um, a culture where people just see you as a human being and then respect you because you do good work, um, I think it's critical because then they can, you know, and you keep asking for the feedback, but like in a genuine way where you show that it's not like, oh, this is already, what do you think of this plan? Also, it's already gonna be executed, right? Like we all have been there where that's been true. And if you can find a way to make that different and let people see behind the curtain in that messy middle, as I think Brene Brown calls it, um, I think like your work's gonna be better. You know, there's a quote, like the smartest person in the room is the room. I always forget to who to attribute it to originally. Um, but it's true. You, you know, the best ideas come from more than one brain. And I don't know why we're not doing that
0: kind of work more. And I think that the kind of leadership, the inclusive leadership that you're describing makes it easier to take risks. So I wanted to uh, tie this in with another piece that you wrote called We Can Do Hard Things. You talk about how this year is providing us with all kinds of difficulties, but it's also providing us with chances to make positive changes, like the way we uh, do family get-togethers, the way we do holidays, but also the way we teach. What are some of the positive change opportunities that are on your radar right now?
2: Hmm, That is a great question. I actually just wrote about this today. uh, So I, I really, really like thinking about this a little bit more. I've been thinking about how I, I didn't realize until, and I think we're all feeling like 2020 taught us a lot of things that we had not realized and we just had to figure it out. But I didn't realize how much of my inner peace came from a life of predictability. So like knowing exactly like what the schedule was gonna be and like what to expect next month. I mean, it felt like out of nowhere, the world shut down last March, and then we also still don't quite know the timeline for exactly when things can be a lot different for us still. Um, And so um, I'm learning a positive that I am learning to bring it back to your question, trying to be good about that, is um, how to live in the present moment, like fully live in it and be at peace and be well and like have that be enough for me um, and not need to know and no, and no, and no. Um, And I've sort of been forced to figure that out, right? Um, And I wonder how many little things like that, or maybe they're not little, they probably are big, um, are true for a lot of us because we've experienced radical change.
0: So you mentioned that you were thinking about this through writing today, through your writing today. And my last question actually has to do with writing. Oh, good. Uh, You know, it's the Ohio Writing Project. I know, we gotta bring in writing. So how has writing changed the way that you teach and the way you work with teachers?
2: That is, I, I keep saying it, I'm like on a, like on repeat. That is a great question, but it really is. Writing gets me to slow down um, and examine things that are in my brain and in my heart that I didn't realize were there before. And and what do I think about those things that are there? Um, And it's sort of, it's almost like a little discovery mission for me. Um, There was a quote that I just was, I love the book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And for people who haven't read it and, and who enjoy trying to tap into their own personal creativity, I highly recommend it. But she says something along the lines of, within each of us, the universe has buried hidden jewels. Um, And it it really is up to us to discover them. Something along those lines, probably butchered it, super good, look it up. But that's what writing is for me, is exploring what hidden gems are there um, that make me feel more connected to myself and my purpose and the difference that I wanna make in the world. And what I wrote about today was also about how I have a tendency to make myself small Um, in the sense that it is more comfortable for me to not draw attention to myself, um, in certain spaces or not talk about how I'm really thinking or things that I'm thinking about that are really controversial or not to call somebody out. If something like in my spirit doesn't feel right because of something that they said toward another person or toward me so many times I've done nothing, um, and writing has helped illuminate that for me and also writing makes me feel bigger it makes me feel like I can expand and like if I share my writing with other people it's like this part of me that was working through something like it grew and grew and grew into this thing and then I feel bigger because I like shared the thing with other people and now it's in their heart and mind to think about the thing and it makes me feel like I can expand and I would say that, that writing has been like free therapy Um, and a way for me to practice being big.
0: Recently, I was listening to an interview with Seth Godin. He's a famous author, marketing person, and he even has a TED Talk. But the important thing is what he said. He said that at the core of almost every case of writer's block is simply a fear of bad writing. I think the same thing is at the core of teacher's block, whether it's struggling to have a breakthrough lesson planning, working with students, or in this case, like in our conversation today, working with other teachers. It's a fear of bad teaching that can be a real block. But Godin adds that in order to get to the good writing, you have to go through the bad writing. That's what I love about Megan's approach. This fearlessness of showing your bad teaching off or your less perfect moments off and how that can lead to breakthroughs. So I want to encourage everyone who listened today to really not be afraid to show off your worst self. Well, I guess I should be careful about that advice. You know what I mean. If you're interested in following Megan Lawson's work, please check out our show notes, her contact information, her social media stuff, her uh, a link to her blog can all be found there. In addition to that, in our show notes, you can find out ways that you can get more involved with the Ohio Writing Project. Whether it's new classes, writing groups, or other kinds of opportunities, OWP is constantly putting out amazing content, workshops, and other kinds of professional development that you could be involved in. So be sure to check out, once again, those show notes. And thank you, as always, for tuning in to Write Answers.